Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome one and all to the Storybox podcast, the place to be if you are a lover of stories. My name is Jay Phantom, former real estate agent now, living my purpose, sharing amazing stories from people all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. My next guest is relentless. He is passionate. He is making an impact in this world. It is none other than Tom Bilyeu, the founder and former CEO of Quest Nutrition, now the founder and CEO of Impact Theory and Impact Theory University. He is making a positive change in the world. And for those of you who don't know exactly what Impact Theory is, Tom's mission is to personally drive and help people develop skills that they will need to improve themselves and the world. His intent is to use commerce to address the dual pandemics of physical and mental malnourishment. He's a very intelligent, high-performing individual. He regularly inspires audiences of entrepreneurs, change makers, and thought leaders at some of the most prestigious conferences and seminars around the world, including Abundance 360, a fest and freedom fast lane. Tom has been a guest on the Tony Robbins podcast and the School of Greatness with Lewis Howes. He has been featured in Forbes, Inc., Success, and the Huffington Post magazines. He's, he's done so much in his life, and I guarantee you guys are going to get a lot from this interview. I was so incredibly thrilled to be able to sit down with Tom and really get to unbox a little bit of his story. I wish I had more time so I could really go deeper. I feel like there's so much more there, so much more value to be had, but I'm so grateful for for Tom's time and for believing in me enough um, to actually come on, come on the Storybox podcast. So I know you guys are going to get some value out of this episode from Tom. With that being said, before we dive into the Storybox, I have one huge favor to ask of you guys. I say this on a repeat, but if you get something from it, if you want to support the story box, send it to a friend or family member first, let them know about this episode, make sure that they get helped as well, help build this community, help make an impact in their life today. You can be a change maker. You can do that. It is your choice. And I hope this episode is one of those uh, helps in order for you to make a positive impact in the world for yourself or for your friends and spend 30 seconds, it's only 30 seconds, and it goes a huge way 
uh, to building the Storybox community and helping reach more and more people with these amazing stories. But please leave a, a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All the links are in the show notes. You can also watch the full interview with Tom and I um, on YouTube. The links for those will be in the show notes below. I think I've said enough. How about you? I think so too. So let's dive into Storybox and hear Tom Bilyeu's incredible life-changing story. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. It's an absolute honor, man. Like I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation for quite some time now. Before we dive into your backstory and, and how you got started doing all this sort of stuff, I have one question that I love asking people to sort of start things off, which is, what does success look like to you? For me, the the whole point of success is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Um, so that is something that I focus on a lot. Now, I also chase, you know, very worldly things. I want to build the next Disney. Um, you know, obviously generating money has been, uh, has played at times a very large role in my life. Um, but ultimately what I focus on myself and certainly what I tell other people to focus on is just what do you think about who you are? Um, that's the only thing that ultimately will inoculate you from the ups and downs of life is um, if you have a core belief that, you know, you're, you're going at things as hard as you can in a way that you value and appreciate um, and striving towards fulfillment is, you know, sort of the way that people will normally talk about that. Um, but that really is all that matters. Where did you come up with your version of success? Has it sort of been like this gradual thing over time that you sort of realized it or was there a catalyst moment somewhere in your life? Uh, as with most great things, it was a realization born out of um, suffering. And I chased money really hard for a very long time. And I had money on paper. <clears throat> I don't, it, money gets very complicated in terms of you can be wealthy on paper, but not really experience uh, the true joys of, you know, actually being able to facilitate something with that money. Mm. And so I was in that position for a long time. And it was in that where I was on paper, I was a multimillionaire um, and it was just like, I am so dead inside, this sucks. And I did not have any interest in staying there. And so I went and gave back all the equity and I said, I quit and I need to go do something that makes me feel alive. And in that just began to realize like, the game I'm playing is neurochemistry. It isn't like you can think I'm cool, but if I don't experience that I am proud of who I am, I'm excited about what I'm doing, the neurochemistry of my life is garbage. And if the neurochemistry of your life is garbage, you've already lost. And so in that process, realizing that the, the thing I was really trying to manage through or that I was trying to capture that I hoped money would bring me was a neurochemical state. And if I cut out the middleman and just said, like, this is the neurochemistry, this is how I want to feel, um, what are the things that lead me to that? And it's doing really hard stuff in service of something that I care deeply about. Mm. What I'm curious about is Australians, we have this syndrome called tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you've heard Oh, I know all about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have this um, sort of fear about talking about money. We don't like talking about it. What I love talking about is why we have this problem in the first place. Where did it actually come from? Have you discovered over time, why do you think it's a problem that we have this fear or people in general, I think, don't really like talking about money? Do you think, or what, why do you think that is? 
Well, I mean, if you've created a social structure where people really do get slapped down for, um, you know, sticking their head up and daring to be bigger, saying that they want to be better, striving for greatness, you know, uh, then you're going to get gun shy to that. You, I, I would love to say, oh, I don't care what people think. Uh, the reality is that just is not true. Anybody who says that, like there can be a frame of reference from which they say it, meaning like I care more about what I think about myself than other people, 100%. But the reality is all of us as a social animal are hardwired, meaning if 50% of us is unchangeable and 50% of us is changeable, part of that 50% that's unchangeable is just you give a shit about where you fit in the social landscape. You have to, to survive in an ancestral environment. Mm. So it's always going to hurt when somebody, you know, is trying to cut you down or a mob comes after you. Like it's, it's an emotionally difficult thing to navigate through, um, but it certainly isn't impossible. So what people really have to do is figure out what their own values are, what they want for themselves um, so that they can get above that. And one thing I've, I've joked and, and I'm actually not kidding, but like if I were Australian, I'd be like, all right, fuck this. Yep. <laughs> I want to be the best, the greatest of all time. And you can come at me if you want. Uh, but that that's what feeds me. And I'm not going to value myself on whether I achieve it. And I'm not going to value myself on what you reflect back to me. Um, I'm going to value myself for sincerely pursuing that thing. And, you know, I mean, we could, I could spend our whole time talking about, you know, why investing in something that has real world consequences matters. Um, but the quote that sums it up the best is to say, booze don't block dunks, which is something Kobe Bryant used to say. And once you understand, you can get so good at something that while it may still hurt emotionally when people come after you, they can't stop you and they can't outperform you. And so in that, like, to me, that's something I value myself for is to try to get so good at something that I can serve not only myself, but other people, but that nobody can stop me from doing it because I can just outperform them. And that, to me, quite frankly, is the meaning of life. I love that, man. We could unbox that a little bit more if we had the time to, and I would love to do that at some point in the near future. But one question that kept coming up in my mind about all that was, do you think it hurt more when you didn't have any money or did you think it hurt more when you had more money? Having more money has never hurt me. So um, the for sure, money is a facilitator. So if you're broke and you're struggling with you know, the things that money is there to take care of, that is a very stressful existence. Now, part of what saw me through the extended period of my life where I was poor was that I really believed that I could change classes. And the thing that scares me now is we're creating a mindset, even though it is patently false, we're creating a mindset where people believe that they're stuck. And if you believe you're stuck, you won't do anything to get out of that place. And if you don't do anything to get out of that place, then you actually are stuck. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So as a child of the 80s, it was just everybody was telling me that, you know, I could be rich from my parents who said I could do anything that I set my mind to. And of course, quietly did not actually believe that I could ever go get rich, but they were telling me I could. Movies, you know, it was all about something that I didn't have, you know, every like 80s movie that I loved was set in upper middle class Chicago. And so it was like, I longed for that big, beautiful house and, um, you know, to have some sort of non-defined job that made you a lot of money. And I just believed I could do it. And I had a friend that um, recently confessed to me, he was like, I always knew you would get rich. And I was like, why? And he said, because you believed in money. 
And he was like, people get what they believe in. And I was like, that is really true. And so because it just didn't occur to me that I couldn't work my way to that, I kept working my way towards it. And then ultimately you get a skill set and that skill set, and look, no one can ever guarantee your success, but I developed a set of skills that made me very prepared to take advantage of the vast majority of the opportunities that came my way. And it was like, you just start stacking all of those things with a relentless pursuit to get better. And just enough of them end up aligning that you're able to push yourself forward. Um, so that's been, you know, the, the main thrust for me. So being poor can hurt because money's real. Um, having money will only hurt if your mind is in the wrong place. Which is what I was, um, sort of trying to explain, but I failed to do it. I apologize, but you, you, you got there. <laughs> I love it. So I want to go back a little bit to how you, you grew up. You sort of mentioned it for, for a moment. So what did you always want to be when you grew up? Now, for those people that don't know, I know personally that you wanted to be a filmmaker and that resonated with me a lot because ever since I was eight years old, that's what I wanted to be. And it was, um, the princess bride, that movie, I watched it. And it had everything in it, man. And I was just like, I want to make movies like this that have good stories in them. So are you able to share a little bit about why you wanted to become a filmmaker? Well, when I was a kid, so from the time I was 12, I've known that I wanted to make film. The why has shifted over time. So when I was younger, it was films hit me so hard that you just find yourself one, wanting to be in that world. And then two, there's two types of people. If you find that learning how the magic trick is done devalues magic for you, that puts you in one camp. And then on the other camp is people that as they find out how the magic trick is done, <clears throat> magic becomes more valuable, more powerful. They're more interested. And I fall into that camp. So the more I learned about how movies were made, the more energized I became by the process. And then now over time, it's become about the power of story and how you really can shift people's underlying beliefs through narrative. And in fact, that's the only way to do it at scale. And so that's really my obsession. And then so from when you were a young kid and you realized, okay, I want to make movies, where did you go to from there? Did you go to film school at all? Or uh, did you train or... Where'd you go? I did. Yeah. So I went to, I ended up going to film school. Um, so straight out of high school, went to film school, got my degree in four years, uh, and then realized that I had no idea whatsoever on how to break into the industry. And this is all before YouTube, before video cameras are high quality. I mean, now on your phone, you can shoot 4k video. I mean, that's insanity. Uh, none of that existed. So that began a, a very hard journey for me to, marry the reality of what you want with having to have the drive to acquire the skills to actually make it happen. Mm. So you finish university, you try getting a job. Did you struggle getting work or like what was sort of like your process moving forward uh, from, from university after you graduated? So when I first graduate, I made a decision very early on that it was either direct or bust. So I wasn't going to try to work my way up from PA to director. That just seemed, um, it seemed like a, trying to climb the corporate ladder to get a creative job, which just isn't the way to get a creative job. Um, so what I wanted to do was find jobs that would let me write. So the only thing I could see was if I have a killer screenplay, then... I can leverage that to become a director. Um, 
one, I was a bad writer. And then two, I didn't even like, let's pretend, let's do the thought exercise. If you have the greatest screenplay in the world, who do I give it to? So I was stuck in this realm of like, do I need to shoot a short film? But like short films are so expensive. Yeah. Do I need a feature film? But feature films are like, I can't even fathom the amount of money um, that that would take at that time in my life. So it was, I was really sort of sketching out and I was sliding towards depression because I was just so, I felt so lost and so hopeless. Um, but I started teaching film and then teaching film began to show me that maybe I could learn to do this because I had really deep fears um, after graduating from college that I wasn't good enough and that I didn't have talent. Uh, and the reason I had those fears was because I didn't. And so I needed to get good, but I didn't realize at that point that getting good was a process. I thought you were just born that way. So teaching film showed me, actually, that's not true. You can improve. Um, and so that was sort of the first ray of hope. And, you know, then a very long story ensues from there uh, as to why, you know, it's only in my 40s that I returned to filmmaking after, uh, you know, almost a 20 year sojourn um, to generate the, the finances. But uh, yeah, I'm finally back. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I think I have to relate to you on that, that front because, you know, like I said, I wanted to be a filmmaker ever since I was eight years old. And my journey or my path to wanting to become a filmmaker didn't exactly turn out the way I thought it would. You know, I had a vision for, okay, going to Hollywood, making, becoming a famous director. You know, Spielberg was my idol. So I would look up to him, absorb every single movie that he would make, uh, read a lot of books, you know, write a lot of stories. I, that's what I thought. And then I ended up falling into a depression, same with you. Um, for many different reasons, but another one was my, I thought I put my whole identity into film and the moment that was taken away from me, I was like, well, who, who the hell am I? So I think it's like a good idea or good practice for a lot of people to actually just stop and distinguish between I get to do this and, or I do this as a job rather than this is my identity and who I actually am as a person. So I think distinguishing that is, is, is a vital uh, tool and resource in, in one's life. And uh, what I want to ask you though, Tom, is why did you end up coming back to film in the first place? So <clears throat> this comes down to if all that success really is, is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself, you have to begin to understand what are the things that make you feel some kind of way about yourself. And <clears throat> one of the things I think that's really overlooked in the human experience is meaning and purpose. Mm. And as I was building companies and generating wealth, what I began to realize is, all right, if I retire, what, what will I feel? What will be the neurochemical experience that I have? And I realized that it would be very, very empty and would not feel the way that I want to feel if there wasn't something really important to me that was quite hard to accomplish that I was giving everything of myself over to. Um, and so then I just thought about, you know, what is that? And so at my last company, Quest, I had, and this is where I'm condensing a whole lot of stuff into a very small nutshell, but um, I had done some big brothering in the past. And so I knew how detrimental a zip code could be to somebody's future. And here I find myself, I have 3000 employees, a thousand of them grew up really hard in the inner cities. And they were extraordinary people, some of whom I thought were quite a bit smarter than me. They had better business instincts than I had. And I just thought, okay, this is so weird. Like, why am I succeeding in a way that they're not? 
And I began to realize it was a mindset problem and they just didn't think they could be successful. And so it did not occur to them to do the things that one needs to do to become successful because they believed it was a preordained conclusion that they couldn't. And, you know, this is culturally the debate right now, just to me is, is absolutely asinine in terms of, is the world holding some people back? Yes. Now what? Now what? Like, what are you going to do? And my thing is you have to step to the world with the attitude of, fuck this. I can get so good. Nobody can stop me. And that puts you on a journey of acquiring skills of getting to the point where booze can't block dunks. But the moment you think that booze actually can block dunks, um, now you're in in real, real trouble. Um, And that isn't to say that there aren't some uh, societies that are so pathological that, you know, I mean, really, truly, it's like you step out of line and, and the tall poppy syndrome is you are actually killed. But short of that, like things being difficult, um, you know, from that adversity arises the most extraordinary accomplishments. And, you know, it's not an accident um, that people that have had to overcome adversity often go on to do these things that are just unimaginably fantastic. And you get this idea of t-shirt to t-shirt in three generations. So the first person to rise up, like they do fucking extraordinary things, the next generation coasts. And then the third generation has nothing again, because they weren't taught that resilience. So getting people to understand like whether or not the deck is stacked against you does not mean that you shouldn't play. And so coming into this and understanding that the average human animal is designed to learn and grow. So I started thinking, how do I get people to believe that? And it was that obsession and playing the no bullshit game of no bullshit, what does it take in this case to get people to have a growth mindset and to go pursue greatness, despite growing up in a bad zip code, despite, you know, being a minority, whatever the case may be, how do I get them to act in a way that sets them up for success? And I realized you, one, you have to catch them, unfortunately, between the ages of 11 and 15. It's called the age of imprinting. It's where a large portion of your subconscious values are are implanted. And you can change them as you get older, but it certainly becomes harder. Um, So that shifted my focus as a filmmaker to kids. And then uh, if Disney, which is sort of my beacon of just how much cultural influence you can have, if Disney is able to create the most magical place on earth by telling one kind of story over and over and over from a thousand different angles. Can I create the most empowering place on earth by telling one kind of story from a thousand different angles over and over and over. And so that was, and look, it, it isn't a mistake that it was something that aligned with abilities that I already have, that Mm -hmm. it falls into the vein of communication where I get disproportionate returns. So every amount of energy that I put into a communication medium, you know, I'm going to get back. I've always just sort of called it 1.3 times times, maybe your average person, right? Maybe the normal person is one. A lot of people fall into the sort of 0.7 category. So compared to somebody who's getting a 0.7 return on their time, I'm getting a 1.3. It's like on a long time scale, it's like that really starts to matter. So you put all that together, my my love, my passion, my core competency, um, and and its real world ability to have this tremendous impact. And that became the place that I wanted to play. I have so many questions just coming out of that answer, but I think I want to go back a little bit to the depression aspect and ask you how you actually overcame the depression. Do you still struggle with moments of depression now or are you completely- Definitely not. So back in the day, what it was all about was 
The thing that gave me a ray of hope is what we would now refer to as brain plasticity. Yes. Um, at the time, it was hotly debated. So I had a fixed mindset and I believed that the talent and intelligence that I had, I was born with and there was no way to improve. And so my life was about, okay, I, I couldn't have said the words, but I knew that I wanted to feel good, right? As much as humanly possible. Mm. And things that made me feel bad were not being as smart as somebody else. So I valued myself for being smart. So I was constantly putting myself in smaller and smaller places uh, where nobody was challenging my intelligence. And that meant that at one point I was selling video games retail, which I'm not throwing shade at that. I'm just saying like, that wasn't where I wanted to be, but that was where I felt really comfortable. And so trying to get out of that, I started reading about the brain and I came across brain plasticity and just decided that even though nobody was saying for sure, whether it was real or not, which has sort of now been uh, in clinical trials put to rest, it is real. But uh, back then, nobody you know, was able to say definitively. I just said, I'm going to act as if it were real because that's so much more hopeful. And the way that I feel about myself when I think that I could get better, I could improve over time, it mm-hmm. lifted such a weight. Um, so I just started working and saying, okay, the, the magic here is I've got to work my ass off. And if this really is real, and I work hard enough, long enough, then I can beat people. And I could get as good as Steven Spielberg. I could get better than Steven Spielberg. And so that became, you know, my obsession. Like, could I become the greatest of all time? Now, here's the great news. Probably not. But I sincerely pursue it. I don't value myself. And I I won't, like, on my deathbed, it's very easy to run this thought experiment. Just say, you're on your deathbed. You never became better than Steven Spielberg. How do you feel about yourself? And in that moment, I'm like, did I go all out every day, like, doing my best? And did I have a great time doing it? Because if I did, then what's the problem? Mm. And that just became self-evident. But for me, the it needed to be true that I was actually playing to win. And so that was um, a very big part. And it all goes back to brain plasticity. And so that was at that first beacon. And I've stayed obsessed with neuroscience since then because it, it is so useful. One of my good friends, Dr. Andrew uh, Huberman, I had a good oh, conversation with him. My goodness, that was such an in-depth dive into neuroplasticity, the brain, how it functions, how it thinks. I'm fascinated by the brain. And I've all, I asked him a question about where does curiosity come from? Like, are we born being naturally curious? And what I'm curious about you, Tom, is how long did it actually take you to get from, okay, you're in a state of depression to becoming out of this state of depression? How long was that period of your life? Uh, I was in a really dark place and I won't call it depression because I don't want to cheapen, um, you know, somebody who's like for real stuck in a gnarly place. Mm. Um, but the dark period of my life was hardcore for about two or three years. And then I had glimmers of hope, but it was still pretty gnarly because my behaviors and um, my sense of self and the loops, the negative voice in my head that was on play um, was pretty gnarly for probably another four years. Um, so call it, you know, all told six or seven years of like, mm. all right, this is, this is a pretty dark place to be. Um, but that, you know, again, it wasn't clinical depression. I wasn't like, you know, there's no ray of sunshine. It was nothing like that. Um, mm. it was just, I was young, I was dumb, I was scared. Um, I felt hopeless. So to, if, if you think of it as a spectrum from sort of darkest days to, okay, if I'm, you know, more or less what you see now, that was, about a, a six or seven year journey. 
who made the greatest impact on you during that period of time that sort of helped you realize that, hey, you got to stop? <laughs> it's interesting. There are a lot of people, there's no question that my wife ultimately is a person that has had the, the biggest impact. But at that time, it wasn't like she was a mentor or anything. Mm-hmm. So the people that were mentors to me were books. Tony Robbins played a huge role in my life. Um, anybody that was spouting self-help. And then the guys that ended up becoming my partners at Quest were like really diehard self-help junkies. And so being around them was really helpful. Um, but that sort of between books my partners and my wife, that was really the, the trifecta of uh, things that propelled me forward. And how did you meet your wife? And what has been the biggest lesson that she's taught you over the years? Well, I met her. So I was teaching film at a school for adults, uh, but she was my student. And uh, we hit it off and she was only supposed to be there for eight weeks. And I thought this is perfect. She's legally obligated to leave the country. Um, And, you know, nice and easy at the time, I I had no interest in a long-term relationship and uh, ended up going to see her. So we spent like uh, six weeks or eight weeks or something while she was here in the U S and then she moved back to London and I went to visit her and I was there for 10 days. And as I was flying back from that 10 day trip, I was like, fuck, man, I'm in love. And that was it. She's the only woman I've ever said I love you to. Um, just wow. completely knocked me off the trajectory that I thought I was on and realized I'm either never getting married or I'm marrying that woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest lesson that I've ever learned from her is about being hardcore. And basically, if you say you want something, then you better act in accordance. And don't say that you want to be great and then lay in bed all day because those two things are misaligned in a pretty gross way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she held me to a standard. And that is that is the thing to which I will never be able to repay my debt to her, nor will she ever get enough credit for helping shape me into the man that I am today. Um, and it's something that so fascinates me about the dynamic between men and women um, and has become sort of this weirdly contested area um, as if we are exactly the same. And to me, the, the joy of being in a relationship is being with somebody who's different than you and mm-hmm. having them see something you don't see and move through the world in a different way. Um, and, and it's been extraordinary. And one of the things that I've heard, and I'm sure this is beyond the scope of your podcast and forgive me if I get you hate mail, but um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I found so intriguing is that especially for um, historically cultural reasons, women have had to move through the world through men. And so, you know, the reason you get this statement that behind every great man is a great woman is because that's really fucking true. And, you know, for me, for a decade of my marriage, I was the instrument that both Lisa and I were using. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating now that Lisa is truly my peer in every way and is an extraordinary entrepreneur in her own right. Um, But for, you know, a decade, she was a housewife and she laid out my clothes and cooked my meals and, but also helped me become something when she didn't plan to sort of step to the world in her own way, it was going to be to work with me to become the thing that was going to take the family to glory. Uh, it was so extraordinary now to look back and be like, oh my God, like I, I don't even know who I would be if we hadn't been a couple. And, you know, we talk about being um, independently codependent and how we have intentionally tried to infuse our lives in ways that truly make us inseparable to the point where I'm only afraid of two things, 
brain damage and the loss of my wife. Um, because I, I, it is impossible to draw a distinction between me and her and I as a couple in, in, in a way that I find so rewarding. Do you have any regrets? Um, probably if I stopped and thought about it, there are things that, that could have been done more effectively. And I'm not somebody who's like, Oh, you know, don't waste time with regrets because it made you who you are. It's like that, that's something the brain does. The brain will justify whatever situation you're in. Um, if you paralyze somebody and ask them a week after the accident, they will be miserable. If you ask them again a year after the accident, they are almost certainly going to tell you it's the best thing or the most important thing that's ever happened to me. Mm. That's the, the joy of being a human is all this ridiculous shit that you did that you could have avoided and done way better and way smarter. Um, you find a way to integrate it into no, but it made me who I am. So I just don't think a lot about that. Um, but if you gave me a button and I could undo shit, I would for sure. If I sat down and thought of it, there are things to be like, yep, undo that, do it differently. A hundred percent. Um, I just don't, it doesn't make me think less of myself that I have done an unimaginable string of really dumb shit. Mm. Um, because it's, I think more, I try to use the analogy of AI. AI takes mistakes or failures as samples. It's, you just, it's a piece of information. It's a data point. And that's how I look at my past. It's just all data points. And what would you say has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Wow. I don't know if my brain just doesn't catalog that. Um, I have no idea there. Uh, well, so the one thing I will say, and, and I have often uh, laughed at this was when I first got into podcasting, which was God, like six years ago now, wow. um, people were like, nah, it's already played out. Don't bother. Like the people who are going to make it have already made it. Um, and I was like, nah, there's always room for the best. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to go focus on becoming the best. Um, which I am not, but I've gotten good enough uh, that I have built. Pretty damn good, man. Certainly. <laughs> thank you. Very kind. Very kind. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm playing to win. So I, I haven't given up yet. I'm still trying to get better every day. Um, but that, that, uh, that's probably the funniest thing anyone has ever said to me because it just ended up being so untrue. Were you ever like when you first did your very first interview, what was going through your mind during that time, if you remember? Like we know, I hope afraid. people can't tell that I'm practically panicking. That was about <laughs> the uh, the only thing running through my mind, and yeah, I mean, you just get better over time, and you know, you start learning the little lessons. And the big breakthrough was to just relax and be me and have fun and chase the things that I find interesting. But um, I have struggled pretty profoundly with anxiety in my life, and and the beginning of podcasting was very anxiety provoking. Uh, so you know, getting good at it has largely been that, like learning to manage the anxiety. Mm, same. Um, I I'll, I'll hope I can share a quick story before um, we we wrap up our conversation because I've got a couple more questions for you. But um, I when I first started. There was one particular person that I wanted to actually speak to. He was quite big in the in the sense of like social media and real estate. So I reached out to him on Instagram. He said, yes, we've organized a meeting. I've traveled an hour and 30 minutes to get to where he's at. I get there. He's not He's not there anymore. Uh, he's he's back down in, in Sydney. So I had to drive, drive another hour and 30 minutes, meet him in a, in a park. Now he's a physical specimen. He's huge. And I was scared. I'm short. Like I'm 5'7". He's like six foot, whatever, and he's like a mountain of a man. And make matters even worse, he's the first ever millionaire I've ever met in person. 
and I was like shaking. I was super nervous. I was sweating <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my iPad and my dodgy ass podcasting equipment. We got 20 minutes, but he was just so present, so calm. And he made me feel like I was actually worth something. And I thought in that moment, okay, this is exactly what I need to be doing. And I, I don't care how long it takes me. I need to improve the very best I can. I need to try and uh, navigate, learn how to navigate conversations. And it was like a lot of trial by error. Tom, like a kid you not, I had so many bad conversations. I had amazing conversations. But like being able to do this, being able to speak to you is like a dream come true in a way because then I get to help. I get to accomplish my, my mission and my... Um, my purpose, so to speak, which is to help others. So my thank you so much, Tom, for, for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Love this conversation. I've got uh, two more questions for you, if you don't mind. This yeah. is one of my all-time favorite questions that I love asking people at the end. It's my legacy question. So you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? First and foremost, I would want it to um, center around Lisa and I and what we've done together. Um, you know, Lisa and I started, I made her poor, which uh, <laughs> I remember at the time was, was a tremendous motivator. Um, and then we built something together and for sure, like that is the greatest joy of my life on any retrospective, no matter what I do or don't do in my life. Um, I am so invested in my marriage and what we've built. So that would, that would be huge. And then the other thing would be, um, I want to know a generation from now that people that grew up listening to me or God willing, watching the movies and the TV shows and reading the comic books that we've created, um, you know, that took ideas from those characters and did something with their lives. Profound, you know, people that, that were told that they would never do anything, that the world doesn't want people that look like them to succeed. And they go out and kill it because, you know, of a character that I created, which if I'm really honest, is more important to me than somebody who listens to an interview that I do. And I have no justification for that other than the way that I'm wired. I love stories so much. And I want people to resonate with stories that I've created. Um, like I have resonated with, you know, characters that other people have created. And I promise you, I did not do this on purpose, but the shirt that I'm wearing now, that's actually a character that I created. And so it is, it is a child's joy for me to see like that character didn't exist until I thought of it. And then for it to then have a knock on effect in somebody's life, um, that, that would be, if that is in that movie, when I'm a hundred, I'll be a very happy man. It's powerful, man. Is that character reflection of you in a way? It is not. I mean, it has a lot of my philosophies because he's the mentor character. Mm -hmm. um, but no, this this character is actually, so it's from a story called Neon Future, which is a collaboration with Steve Aoki. That particular character is like the, the ninja version of Steve Aoki in this digital world. So the character's name is Kita Sovi. Damn. <laughs> I love that. I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. So <laughs> I have a huge appreciation for this sort of stuff. Tom, my, my final question for you is, this might be a hard one to answer, but we'll see how we go. You've been able to interview so many amazing people and I've 
always wanted to ask you this. If you could ask a question to anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Why? And what question would you ask them? So I'll give you an answer that your audience won't care about, but it, it's the truth. And then I will give you an, an answer that they'll find more interesting. So um, my dad never met his father. And obviously, therefore, I have never met his father, um, who is my namesake. Um, and I would love to, what would end up being the one question? I don't know. Um, I'd really have to think, you know, what drove you? Um, what was your meaning or your purpose or something like that um, would certainly be all interesting things. Um, but something to him, that would be cool. And even I'm surprised that as I've gotten older, that's become sort of more meaningful to me. Um, because I don't think a lot about that. Uh, but that would be interesting. Um, living or dead to a human that people will know of. I think Alexander the Great, I would love to ask him the question, like, what drove you or what was the emotion that ran through your head when you realized there were no more worlds to conquer? Because I think it's him where people say that he, you know, knelt down and wept when he realized that there were no more worlds to conquer. Um, and very curious to know if that was a man who was driven by a deep sickness, um, you know, that like it was just never enough or was it him trying to see what he could be and, you know, just putting it all out there to play. I have a feeling that it will be an answer nuanced enough that no one could write that line of dialogue for him. Um, and so that would be a tremendous answer that I would love to hear. Mm. Do you think, do you ever think real quick, do you ever think that when you do go beyond Disney, you've reached everything, where do you think you'll go to? Where do you think you'll go from there? Well, the interesting thing about what I'm trying to build is, you know, ultimately it's a platform. So you just keep telling new stories. And the as a writer, one thing I always have to remind myself, because every idea just feels so precious. You don't want to put it out into the world because if it if it doesn't achieve the level that it has in your mind, you think, I mean, that's lost forever. Like what it could have been is now gone. And I just have to remind myself, I've always had ideas and I will always keep getting ideas. And so, you know, 85, 90, 100, like, I want to believe that if I stay curious, and I stay engaged with the world that I will continue to have new story ideas that, you know, interact with the human condition, which is ultimately, you know, what any of us are telling stories about. So um, that is, I, I think, something that's really important to me to just make sure that I always remember to, to put this stuff out and to not think that there's some other mountain. It's like this, this is the one thing that I've constructed from the ground up to there is no pinnacle to reach. There is only more stories to tell. You know, there's always somebody new that's becoming 11 years old, you know what I mean? And like, they will forever need um, those values that I hope will introduce people around the globe to a growth mindset. Everyone has a story to share. And I love how you're connecting the world to those stories. It's something that I want to do as well. Tom, it's been an absolute honor speaking to you, man. I hope you had a, a great time as much as I did. Thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast. Where can people find you and connect with you more? At Tom Bilyeu. Um, YouTube is my primary platform. Uh, if anybody out there is into comic books, you can find us on Webtoon. Uh, the comic is Neon Future. And then we also have a Neon Future Discord channel. So check us out there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time today. And for coming Thank on you, man. Podcast. I don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. 
It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.